The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We continue this morning in our study of Luke's gospel. We'll begin this morning looking at verses 1 through 13 in Luke chapter 4. Luke writes, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We've come and we stand before it, recognizing that as we read your word and as we hear it read aloud, we're hearing your very voice. We're hearing your truth. And so as we hear your truth this morning, Lord, we pray that it plants deeply into our hearts and finds root there, that it grows up to bear much fruit. May we hear what you have to say to us this morning, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to Luke chapter 4, and and it's been a moment since we've been walking through the narrative, but uh, if you were to uh, flip back to chapter 3, or if you were with us when we were going through chapter 3, you'll recall some some things had happened in chapter 3. Jesus has just sort of emerged from basically 30 years of, of, um, of being at home with his family, working and doing what he did, sort of uh, out of the spotlight, out of the limelight, sort of out of the notice of anybody, really. And and it's not until uh, we we have in chapter 3 the the, uh, uh, John the Baptist coming onto the scene, the the prophesied forerunner coming onto the scene and beginning to call out to Israel and calling Israel to repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, After hundreds of years of God's silence, he begins to speak through this man, John. And he begins to prepare the hearts of Israel for the Messiah who's coming. The Messiah who, in fact, is already 
on the scene, just not noticed yet. And as we find our way towards the end of of chapter 3, we find John going about his ministry, baptizing in the Jordan, and out of nowhere comes this man Jesus. He shows up at the baptismal service, and he asks John to baptize him, and John resists and and says to him, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus says to him, but this is the way it ought to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. In order to fulfill all righteousness, this is what needs to happen. And so John baptizes Jesus. And and in the moment, we have this miraculous event that takes place. We have the Son of God standing in the the Jordan River, being immersed in the water and coming up. And we have at the same time the Holy Spirit on the scene, the third person of Trinity descending uh, like a dove. And we have the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And it's right on the heels of this that we're told that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. This glorious event, this baptism, this miraculous event that must have been, that must have been just a phenomenal experience for Jesus to, to be baptized and to hear the voice of the Father with that kind of, a, of, a, of an audible affirmation of his identity and who he is and who he's come, who he, what he's come to do and the fact that he's pleasing to his father to immediately on the heels of that be led into the, the wilderness we're told for 40 days and as the story unfolds before us this morning we find that he's, he's being led directly into a confrontation with Satan a, a confrontation that, that for him will be uh, a season of intense temptation very real temptation now I know that uh, you're probably already thinking now right here at the outset of this that man this is going to be a sermon has nothing to do with me I don't know what it's like to be tempted I've never experienced temptation I've kind of got that shirt I've got it I've got that battle I've got the game plan I'm I'm good with that even this week I've, I've just done marvelously right even this morning I've just I've won the battle that's how you've come in here this morning am I right all right, I'm seeing your faces, so there's a little doubt in my mind. Maybe not. Maybe you understand what temptation is like, just like I do. Maybe even this very week, there's been some intense temptation in your life. There's been something that's come along, and you've been caught in that vortex between knowing what it is that God desires of you, and yet being drawn to something else. You know what it's like to be caught in, in that moment where internally you're just wrestling with the reality of, I know what it is that, that would please the Lord, but on the other hand, I have desires sort of welling up within me to do something other than that. And you know what it's like to, to do that thing in your mind where you talk yourself into doing the wrong thing and explaining to yourself why the wrong thing is actually, in this case, the right thing and okay, right? Right? rationalizing in your own mind why you know what God said technically is this but he's going to in my case understand right now why I'm going to do that instead if you understand what that's like if you understand what that internal dialogue sounds like inside the human heart and the human mind then I think there's something for you to understand in this text and namely that the Lord Jesus Christ understands that too 
for really the very first thing that he's led into after his baptism is that very thing. It's that very situation. And not for just a moment, but for a time. If you take nothing else away from this message this morning, you need to take away the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ understands temptation. That he can identify with you when you're in that moment. That he can understand what it's like to wrestle with reality and truth and lies. To really want to do what's maybe wrong or be drawn to that. And to have to make those hard decisions. The same enemy who comes at you is an enemy who came at him by way of temptation. Now, as we walk through this, I'm I'm sure if you've gone to Sunday school much in your life or read through the New Testament at a time or two, you're familiar with how this text unfolds. Luke gives us here, in this case, three specific temptations that that are, are sort of leveled at Jesus by Satan. But it's important to note that the language indicates for us here that that's not all that happens during this time frame. That it's not just sort of uh, a a quick three and out, quickly done and over with. The language indicates to us that, that the temptation of Jesus during this encounter with Satan is a continuous temptation. We have the the three maybe highlights, if you will, that Luke has recorded for us. Or if you want to say it another way, it may be that uh, what's happening here is this prolonged temptation of Jesus is sort of multiple temptations running along three sort of main tracks. But I want you to understand that it's not just a quick three and out, a quick three and done. You're like a bad football team on offense that, you know, runs three plays into the ground and has to punt and it's over. This is a continuous prolonged event. It's a continuous onslaught of the enemy at the Son of God. And during it, there is no relief. One other little interpretive note before we get into the text. If you read the same account in Matthew's Gospel, you'll notice that Matthew records the same temptations here, but he inverts number two and number three versus how Luke records it. Or maybe a better way of saying that is I think it's Luke who does the inversion here and not Matthew. Matthew tends to be more concerned with chronology in his gospel and, and Luke tends to organize things thematically. We've seen that a couple of times already as we sort of work through the gospel of Luke. And so I think that's what we have here when we're looking at Luke in comparison to Matthew in their recording of this particular event. All that to say, Luke gives us some, some context here at the very beginning in verses 1 and 2. He, he, he tells us uh, uh, that, that after, after all of this takes place at the baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led immediately by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It's a direct encounter with Satan. And so, first off, we know Satan is real. That may be obvious to to, to some who are in the room, but there are many in our world who would deny that very reality right now. There may be people that you know, people that you work with, people in your family who would say, oh, there's no real Satan. That's just, that's, there's no, he's not an actual being. Satan is just sort of the evil that happens in the world, and we sort of loop it all up and call it Satan, or we sort of personify it by, by giving it a name, but there's, there's no real Satan He's just an idea. He's just a figment of the imagination. He's just some sort of imaginary boogeyman that the, that the church has created to frighten people. 
Well, the Bible makes clear from start to finish that Satan is real, that he's a true being, that he's not, an, he's not an, an, a figment of the imagination. He's not just some idea. He's not an imaginary boogeyman. He is, in fact, quite, quite real. The Bible tells us he is a fallen angel. Being a fallen angel, he has significant power, significant intellect. He's not limited to the things that limit us as human beings. He has the ability to do supernatural things, to, to mimic miracles. We see examples of that throughout the Old Testament. I think immediately of, of Moses uh, being called to go to Pharaoh and, and to, to, to call Pharaoh to let God's people go. You recall that event? And, and God sends Moses there and he attests to Moses, to the truth of what Moses is speaking by giving him the ability to, to work some miracles in front of Pharaoh. But even right there in the court of Pharaoh, there was a counteractivity going on, wasn't there? There was another set of prophets that were not prophets of God. They were prophets of Satan. And they too could work miracles, right? They too could do things that appeared supernatural. And they were not empowered by God. It was Satan who was behind all of that. So he's a fallen angel, significant power, significant intellect, not limited to the things that we're limited to, has the ability to do supernatural things. But it's important to note that he's not deity. He is not a god in any sense of the, of the word. He is a created being. He is not omniscient. He does not know all things. He is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. His power is limited. He cannot be everywhere at one time. He is, in fact, no match for God. He's a cheap knockoff. But he and his demons, the Bible declares to us, which are simply other fallen angels, they work overtime to corrupt humanity. Not only are they real, but they have a job and an activity that they're about here among us. They drive sort of the evil and unjust systems that operate in the world. Behind all of that is satanic, demonic activity and influence. They incite violence. They incite death. They incite war. They incite destruction around the world. They consume and, and sometimes even possess unconverted people. They can so consume the life of someone who is far from God that, that, that they can almost take over the personality of an individual. Their M.O., if you will, is the same as that of Satan's, that that is the demons. They're here to kill, steal, and destroy. When it comes to believers in the Lord Jesus, those who place their faith in Christ and trusted in him to save them, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, they cannot, their power is limited in regards to us. They can tempt, they can frighten, they can oppose, they can accuse, they cannot consume and possess. They cannot evict the Holy Spirit from your heart and your life. But make no mistake, that doesn't stop their activity. The 
there's so much more that could be said about that and maybe we'll come back to that idea next week or another time but that's enough for you to capture the context that what Jesus is walking into here he's walking into an encounter with a real being Satan himself and we're told that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads him into the wilderness now how exactly does the Holy Spirit lead him into the wilderness we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit led him we don't, you're not given the details of how that happens. We just simply know that by some means, he goes that way, and he goes there because the Holy Spirit is driving him in that direction. He's not just sort of waking up in the morning thinking, hey, where do I go today? I don't know, I could go that way, I could go to this way, I could go by the river, I could go hang out with the guys. I I'll just go over here to the barren desert. He goes there because he's driven there by the Spirit of God. He knew God's will for his life, because the Holy Spirit led him into God's will for his life. And Jesus, of course, does not resist the Holy Spirit. He doesn't fight against the Holy Spirit. He follows and goes where the Spirit leads him to go. And so he goes into what is going to be for him a very unple unpleasant experience. A very unpleasant experience. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads him directly into this thing. And I think it's worth pausing to just park on that for just a second. It is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, leading the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, into a nearly six-week experience of abject misery. Because that's the will of God for his life. Sometimes God's will is for us to be in the storm to be in the wilderness and it's in that place that God has work to do in us and we so often fail to see that so often fail to see that I think of the disciples later in Jesus ministry when Jesus tells them to get in a boat and go out on the sea of Galilee while he goes over here to pray and Jesus is sending them literally out into the sea directly into a storm that they think is going to kill them they weren't out there by accident. They didn't get out there because of sin, sin on their part. They went there because Jesus sent them directly into it. Because it was God's will for their life that they experience a storm. Man, is that hard for us to accept. It's hard for us to accept that sometimes God's will for us is the storm. Sometimes God's will for us is the wilderness. And sometimes it's that for a lengthy period of time. We rarely go there willingly, and we usually fight tooth and nail to get out as fast as possible. Or am I the only one? We rarely consider that God has a plan in the wilderness. But Jesus, the Son of God, understands these things, and He goes. He goes willingly. He doesn't fight to get out. He doesn't resist the Holy Spirit. He goes, and he goes to the place that God's called him to go, and he stays until the Father sends him another way. Something to be said for that. There's some example there for us to follow. But where is this place that he goes? Well, we're just told by Luke that it's the wilderness. He's talking here about the wilderness of Judea. If you've never been to Israel and you've never seen this area, then you may just think the word wilderness, kind of like 
The way we use the word wilderness, trees and forests and all of that, the wilderness of Judea doesn't look anything like that. It looks more like this right here. It's an awful place. It is a horrible place. Deep ravines, rocky terrain. It's dry, it's hot. It's miles and miles of just dry, desolate land. And it's been that way for a very long time. Just a miserable place. Um, one author says this way, says, says this of it. It says it's a bleak, that it's bleak, inhospitable, stark, and harsh. It's set virtually unchanged for thousands of years. The wilderness. It's not the kind of place you would go without a clear purpose. You wouldn't go there for a vacation. You wouldn't be thinking, you know, what are we going to do today? Let's just go to the wilderness. Let's go out to hang out in the wilderness today. You'd never do that. It was an awful place. It was a horrible place. It was a miserable place. It was an unfriendly place. Not just the climate, not just the terrain, but the other things that existed out there and the threats that you would find in the wilderness. It was just not a place that you'd want to be. It was unforgiving and miserable, hot and dry. And that's exactly where Jesus is sent into the wilderness into this place and he spends 40 days out there it's not just for a day or two it's not for a week it's for just shy of six weeks roaming around out in this area there's nothing out there to refresh him there's nothing out there to relieve him there's no company to be spoken of he's utterly alone in an awful place this is also, by the way, just as a note, the wilderness of Judea setting for a number of other biblical events. You may go all the way back to the Old Testament. And remember, this is the area where Israel wandered for 40 years before they made it into the Promised Land. They hung out there for not 40 days, but 40 years. Uh, you may recall that when David, King David, was, was fleeing from Saul, who was chasing him to kill him, King Saul, he, this is where he goes out into the wilderness and he hides there for a little season. And of course, it's where much of John the Baptist's ministry took place was out here in this wilderness. And it's out there that Jesus goes. And it's out there that he encounters Satan, that he encounters the devil, that he encounters him in, a, in a sort of a head-to-head -head showdown, if you will, in the middle of this desert wasteland. And what we have here recorded for us is, is, is the first skirmish, if you will, in a long battle. It's the first encounter or the first real outright skirmish between Jesus and Satan, but it is a, 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 not the last. Uh, throughout the ministry of Jesus, we're going to see the enemy and his demons actively involved and interfering along the way. In fact, if you're just reading Luke's gospel, you just read a little further down into chapter 4, and it's not very long before you find the disciples are in Capernaum with Jesus, and, they, and, and now pops, uh, you know, they run across this demon-possessed man, and and, and right out of the chute, the demons speak through this man, and they say, Ha, huh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Satan and his minions are all about throughout the ministry of Jesus. But here in the wilderness, we have this first major skirmish that ultimately is going to culminate at the cross, this battle. And so he's in the wilderness, and we're told here by Luke that he's out there for 40 days, and he doesn't have anything to eat, so he's, he's fasting for 40 days. 
40 days with no food. And then Luke simply tells us he was hungry. Is there a bigger understatement in the entire Bible? He was hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days, and he's hungry? I don't know about you, but I like to eat. I know it doesn't show with my girlish figure here, but I like to eat. I'm blessed with length, you know, vertical length that gives me room to spread all that out. I love to eat. I love to eat things that aren't even good for me. Mainly, I like to eat things that are not particularly good for me, though I did cook some asparagus last week, and and I did eat that. I think that's good for you, isn't it? It's not what I prefer, but I love to eat. And if I go just for a little while without eating... I'm not the most pleasant person to be around, are you? I've heard, I've heard a term uh, uh, thrown about in recent years, the term hangry. Have you heard that? Can you identify with hangry? What it's like when you miss a meal or you go, uh, you know, a day you get busy and you roll through the day and it's the end of the day and you realize, man, I never even ate today. I'm hungry. Hunger is a miserable feeling. I'm miserable if I, if I go hungry, you know, 40 hours, 40 minutes mainly, but... Give me a day, and I'm not a pleasant person to be around. Hungry. It affects me physically. I get headaches. Do you get those? You get that that growly thing going on in your your belly? You let it go on long enough, it affects you emotionally. It affects you spiritually. Hunger can do all sorts of awful things to a human. Go back and read. If you like to read old war stories, you find out what happens in the and the horrors of war when people are captured and their food is withheld and what it does to their bodies and their minds and their emotions. And it doesn't take a really long time for those things to begin to happen. But Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and Luke tells us he's hungry. He's hungry. He said, well, Luke, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, we're not idiots here. Anybody's in the desert for 40 days and doesn't eat, they're hungry. Why do, you, why do you go to the trouble of stating that? Well, I think there's a reason why Luke goes to the trouble of stating that. He goes to the trouble of stating that because he wants us to understand something very clearly about this encounter so that we don't miss the entire point of it. And that is that this, that Jesus goes into this encounter with Satan and he operates fully as a man. He's not operating under some divine power that comes to him that doesn't come to other human beings. Jesus goes into this encounter, and just like any other man who doesn't eat for 40 days, he's on the verge of outright starvation. He's hungry, he's famished. And he's going through this like a man. He does not have, as Jesus, some divine power to go 40 days without eating and be just fine with it. And it's important. It's important because I think sometimes we read through stories like this and we begin to think, oh, well, he was out there for 40, he didn't eat for 40 days, and he faced Satan in a temptation. I mean, of course he did that. He's Jesus. Jesus can do things like that. As though he's operating by some power that is not available to us. So we write it off as though it's not a big deal. So Luke wants you to know, no, 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 that's not how it goes here. Jesus was hungry. He was hungry just like you'd be hungry. He's not operating by some divine power that's unavailable to you. 
Because if that's what he's actually doing in this encounter, then he absolutely cannot identify with my temptation. If Jesus is operating by a different set of rules, if he's got some other power available to him that he's putting to use in the midst of temptation that I don't have available to me when I'm in the midst of temptation, then he can't possibly understand what it's like when I face temptation because he's got something I don't have. And the Bible insists that the very reason Christ can identify with my temptation is because he's gone through it just like I have and just like you have. The Bible insists front to back, Jesus Christ, while divine, is truly human in every way. We talked about this before already in Luke's gospel. In every, but in everything we face, he's faced it. And he faces it the way we have to face it. So that when we face it, we can go to one who can identify with what it's like to face it and who can help us walk through it. And Luke tells us here that he's hungry to reaffirm to us that that is in fact what's happening here. Whatever you face in your life, whatever I face in my life, as a human being among human things, Christ knows and Christ identifies. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning in your life or what's going on, what kind of pain, what kind of suffering, what kind of temptation, what kind of grief is happening in your world. And you may look around at the people in this room and you think, man, all these people around me, they've just got it all together. Look at them. They're all smiling and they're all happy. They all look like they're happy with their spouse. They all look like their kids behave every day from morning, noon, and night. They all look like, you know, they've got plenty of money in the bank and they don't have financial struggles and they don't have the, the things that are going on in my life. They can't identify with me. Well, first of all, none of that's true. Our smiles hide reality an awful lot of the time. But even if that were true, even if everybody in this room was different and couldn't identify with what you have going on right now, the Lord Jesus Christ can identify with what you have going on right now. You're never alone in your grief. You're never alone in your pain. You're never alone in your temptation. So Jesus is hungry, Luke tells us. So this is all set up for a perfect scenario, right? We've got Jesus in this awful place for 40 days. He's in the most miserable of environments and has been there for quite some time. And he's literally on the verge of starvation when he encounters Satan. And Luke tells us in verse 3 that the temptations begin like this. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Command this stone to become bread. And we read that and we're like, well, what's the big deal with that? Command the stone to become bread. He's hungry, clearly. Luke's already told us that. And our common sense tells us that. He's famished. It's not sinful to eat bread. So what's the big deal? Make some bread, man. Eat it up. You've got a problem, fix it. But there's more to be said than that. Scene begins with this phrase, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Now remember, Jesus has just recently come off of his baptism. And what is the last significant thing that he heard at his baptism? You are my beloved Son. If you, I'm well pleased. 
He's heard the Father, the Heavenly Father, His Heavenly Father declare the truth by His own word. You are my beloved Son. This is a, this is a settled issue. It's already been spoken by the, the audible word of God. The issue of Jesus' identity is nailed down. It's clear, you are my beloved son. But here comes Satan, right out of the chute in this, in this encounter. And the first thing he says is, if you are, if you are, are you really? Are you sure that that's who you are, the son of God? If you are the son of God. What do we make of this? Is it, is it, a, is it a case where Satan is, is doubting the truth of the father's de- declaration? Does he, does he doubt that what God has said is true? I don't think that's the case at all here. In fact, I think Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. I don't think he's confused one bit. He may not know the full scope of exactly what Jesus has come to do and how he's come to do it, but he clearly and certainly knows who he is. Throughout the scriptures, Satan and the demons seem to have no confusion about who Jesus is. And we just read in Luke 4, a little further down, he encounters a demon, and the demon knows exactly who he is right out of the chute, right? There's no question about it. Throughout the Bible, Satan and the demons never deny the deity of Christ. They leave that to human beings to do that, but Satan never doubts it. So what's he doing here by saying, if you are the Son of God, could it be that he's that he's testing Jesus' confidence in the Father's declaration? Could it be something along these lines? Hey, uh, hey, buddy, you're not looking too good there. You're looking a little hungry. If you are the Son of God, you're not looking much like that right now. How's that, how's that Son of God thing working out for you? You're out here in the desert. You're starving to death. I mean... If that's who you are, shouldn't things be going a little better for you right now? Shouldn't be things things be looking up? What a subtle temptation, right? What a subtle, what a subtle thing to plant in the in the heart and mind. But it's not an unfamiliar tactic of Satan. What we have here is the Garden of Eden revisited, right? The Garden of Eden take two. You remember what we, re- what we read in the book of Genesis chapter 3? Satan comes along, Adam and Eve, it begins with Eve, and he says to her, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? I know God spoke, I know God said some things, but are you sure that's what he said? That you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, already, what is he doing? He's, he's questioning what God said. He's questioning God's word, and he's twisting God's word because God hasn't actually said they, can't, they, they were forbidden to eat from any tree in the garden. He's only told them what? You can't eat from the tree in the center of the garden, right? The one particular tree. But he's planting that seed of doubt, and he's twisting what God has said already at the outset with Eve here. And Eve clarifies. She gets it. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, he isn't successful at getting her to buy into his lie. He does have her confused already because God hasn't said anything about touching the tree. He just said, don't eat it. Eat from it, not literally eat it. Satan says, oh, he'll not surely die. 
Ah, no, 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 no. That's not true. You're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, it's the exact same tactic with Adam and Eve that he uses with Jesus here in the wilderness. And it's really a three-point sort of a, of a gameplay here. He begins by questioning God's word, right? Questioning what God has said. And then he begins to twist what God has said. And then he outright contradicts what God has said. That's what he does with Eve. And when it comes to Jesus, he knows what God said. God said, you're my beloved son. But he comes along and says, eh, if you are, if you are, if you are the son of God, why are you starving to death? If that's who you are, why is he letting you sit out here and suffer like this? Wouldn't a father take better care of his son than what you're experiencing right now? And there's a subtle implication in the temptation, and here it is. You can't trust him. You can't count on him. He's not going to come through for you. I mean, I know what God has said, but you can't trust what he said. You can't count on his word. You got to be careful. He is not going to come through for you. I mean, look at yourself, man. You're about to die out here, and all you need is something to eat, something you can do just like that. Why are you trusting in him? Why are you counting on him? What makes you believe he's going to come through for you? Why don't you just command this stone to become bread? Just talk to that stone right there and tell it to turn into a, 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 a warm loaf of sourdough bread. I just put the sourdough because that's what I like, right? You say, well, bread isn't all that appealing. I'd rather have something better. If you've been starving for 40 days, bread would sound like filet mignon. You're starving. Bread's a delicacy. Command the stone to become bread. Can you imagine how good a loaf of bread sounded after 40 days of not eating a thing? Satan recognizes Jesus has the power to do this available to him. What is he tempting him to do? He's, attempting, he's tempting him to abandon trust in the Father. He's tempting him to act independently of his Father. He's telling him he can't trust the Father, and he's telling him if he wants to get things done for himself, he needs to do it himself and not wait on the Father to make it happen. And that's the essence of this whole temptation. It's a temptation to dissatisfaction. It's a temptation to impatience. And it's a temptation to self-sufficiency. All of that wrapped up in this temptation. It's a temptation to dissatisfaction with God's provision. Hey, what you have is not enough. You need more. You need more. God hasn't provided enough for you. There's something else you need, and he's withholding it, and you don't have it. There's no reason for you to be happy with what you've got. What you have is not good enough. You need something better. God's gypped you. He's ripped you off. He's withheld the good stuff from you. Doesn't the Son of God deserve something better than this? Starving in the wilderness? It's a temptation to dissatisfaction with God's provision. And it's a temptation to impatience with God's timing, isn't it? It's been 40 days. If he hasn't helped you by now, he's probably not going to help you. 
God's not paying attention. He, he's not tuned into your situation. How long are you willing to wait out here, sitting here, starving? Why don't you just take care of it right now? What are you waiting on? It's impatience with God's timing. And the real temptation here is for him to take matters into his own hands. Isn't that it? Take matters into your own hands. God's not coming through for you. You have to make your own way. You have to take care of things your own, on your own, your own way. You need to do this on your own, and you need to do it now. You have the power. Why starve when you can eat right now? Wow. That's enough to bring pain into my world already. Let me pause for a minute and ask you just a couple of questions. Let's just get real for a moment here. Have you ever been tempted to dissatisfaction with God's provision in your life? Have you ever been through a season in your life when things were not going the way that you'd hoped they would go? And you begin to think sort of things maybe like what Satan was planting in the mind of Christ here. You're, you're a child of God. If you belong to God, shouldn't he, be, shouldn't he be giving you a little better lot than what he's giving you? I mean, look at that guy that lives next door. I mean, they, they hate God, and look at all the things that they've got. They don't struggle like I struggle. They have a better house than I have. Just got a promotion at work. I just got fired. They've got all the good stuff, and God seems to be withholding from me. You know what it's like to be dissatisfied with God's provision in your life? To look around at what you've got and what you're experiencing and to begin to subtly begin to think that, hey, you know what? I think God owes me more than this. I think he owes me a little better, a little better deal. If that hits anywhere near close to home with you, it hits close to home with me. That temptation is so real and it's so prevalent and it comes so seductively and so subtly into my mind and my heart and my thoughts in the littlest, most pathetic ways. Have you ever been have you ever been tempted to uh, impatience with God's timing? You wanted something and you desired something and you felt like you needed something or you were in a situation that, that, that you wanted to get out of but God doesn't get you out of it fast enough. He leaves you there and you pray about it and you pray about it and you say, God, get me out of this. God, get me out of this. I don't want to be here. God, this stinks. I need some relief. And yet he doesn't provide you relief and he doesn't get you. He just leaves you there for a while. You ever grow impatient? with God's timing. Begin to say things like, God, if you loved me, you'd get me out of this. Now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, right now. You ever been tempted to take matters into your own hands? God, I, I want these things and you don't seem to be, you don't seem to be coming through for me. So, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get off of your plan and I'm gonna get onto my plan. Your plan goes that way, but I got another plan and it goes this way and I think that's the one I'm gonna take right now. Because it doesn't seem like you're making good on your end of the deal. It doesn't look like you're gonna come through the way I feel like it needs to come through. So I'm gonna just kind of chart my course over here and I'm gonna sort of take control of the situation myself and I'm going to guide it to where I want it to go. Let's see, I'm looking at your faces, and I'm, I be, I'm getting to think some of this maybe gets close to home. Maybe you do know what it's like to be tempted to dissatisfaction with God's provision in your life. Maybe right now you're dissatisfied with God's provision in some area of your life. 
Maybe right now you're dissatisfied with God's timing. He's not working on your time schedule. And you think you know a better time schedule than he does. And you're demanding that he act that way. Maybe even right now you're on the brink of taking something, some matter in your life into your own hands and saying, you know what, God, I know what you want from me, but, but the heck with that, I'm going my way. Now, if that's where you are, if you understand those things, then you understand what Jesus was dealing with here in this temptation. It's the very same thing. And Jesus says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Well, how's that an answer to that temptation? Well, Jesus hears the lies, he hears the twisting of God's word, and he hears the subtle temptation, and he goes back to what he absolutely knows to be true, which is the word of God. And so he looks to the book of Deuteronomy, and he does that in this text three times, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And you say, well, why Deuteronomy? Because when he quotes from Deuteronomy, it brings back all of the, the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. And it's during that time when Israel's wandering in the desert that God leads them into the wilderness, just like he's in at the moment. And it's during that time that God leads them to places where there was no food, to where they're literally starving, so that they would look to him and trust him, and he could miraculously provide for all of their needs in the form of manna and quail and other things. He leads them sometimes during that season into places where there's no water and they're thirsty and they're thinking they're going to die. And he leads them directly into those places so that they will look to him and he can provide miraculously for all of their needs and show them that he's a God who loves his people who will always provide for their needs. It was all geared to teach them to trust his word. To teach them when God says something, he means it. And when he makes a promise, he will always come through for those who love him and obey him. And yet Israel failed the test time and time and time again. And many of them died in that wilderness because of their disobedience. And so Jesus, in choosing text from Deuteronomy is showing that he fully understands what's happening here in the moment. Not only is this the Garden of Eden revisited, but it's also the, elder, uh, the, the Israelites in the wilderness revisited. Where Adam failed, Jesus is going to stand strong. Where the Israelites failed, Jesus is going to stand strong in the face of the very same temptation. So he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. And in Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses is reminding God's people that God's word is what sustained them. It wasn't the bread. It wasn't the manna. It was the one who made the manna. That was the one who supplied their needs. It wasn't the miraculous bread that sustained them. It was the God who made the bread, who's keeping his word, who's keeping his promise, who's being faithful to everything that he said he would do. And the truth of the matter is this, that he's trying to communicate in Deuteronomy and that he's trying to communicate to you and me today, and it's this, that what sustains a person's life is not food, but obedience to God's word. To those who walk in obedience, the Lord is always faithful. There are a lot of Old Testament Israelites who enjoyed the bread that came down from heaven but died in the wilderness because they disobeyed God and refused to believe his word. And Jesus was not about to make that same mistake. He knew from where his provision came. He knew that God was faithful. 
He knew that God would provide him everything he needed. And if he was starving in the desert right now, then starving in the desert was all he needed. He knew that God was always perfect in his timing, impeccable, never late, never early. That if God hasn't provided for him yet, that it wasn't the right time and his provision would come at exactly the right time. And it did. And he knew that he had to trust in God's way. That he couldn't take matters into his own hand. To take matters into his own hand would be to abandon the Father's will and to go out on his own independent will, severing him from his Father. If that were even possible. To have turned a piece of stone into bread and eaten it while it seems very simple on the surface was a temptation to rip the Trinity down the middle and to destroy any opportunity for him to redeem mankind. Because the moment he did it, he'd become a sinner just like you and just like me. During Jesus' ministry later, we see him reminding people and teaching them this. John chapter 4, verse 3. You remember Jesus' encounter with a woman by a well. His disciples go off to get some food and they come back and find him talking with this, this woman by the well. And the disciples begin to talk and they say, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus says in verse 34, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I don't need bread. I need to accomplish the work that God sent me to do. He says things like in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious, Christian. There's no reason for you to be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Those are the kind of things that Gentiles worry about and wring their hands about and get filled up with anxiety about. But your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So what you need to do is seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things that you're worried about. They'll be added to you. You'll take care of them. You'll take care of them. Instead of being dissatisfied with God's provision and being impatient with God's timing and, and taking matters into his own hands and operating independently from his Father, he looks to God's word and finds truth. He reminds himself and he reminds Satan that the Father cares for his people and that God's word and obeying it is more important than satisfying his immediate needs and desires. Where Adam was deceived in sin, Jesus stands strong. And thus concludes that first season of temptation. And thus concludes our time for this morning. Wow. You guys listened really slowly this morning. So let me figure out how to land the plane here at a different spot. I think it's based on this first temptation. You feel a bit of this in your heart, don't you? Are you ever tempted with these things? Are these things real in your life? Are they, are they real for you this morning? What are you doing when it comes to this kind of temptation or any other kind of temptation in your life? We'll get to this a bit later, but in James' book in the New Testament, James writes a very simple thing about what we're to do in moments like this. He simply says this, in James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee.
from you. We'll talk more deeply about how we respond to Satan and demons and temptation and stuff in our life. But, it, it, but at least for now, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Are you even putting up a resistance in your life? Listen, I'm so ashamed of myself when I think about this topic, to be honest with you. I can think about so many times in my life when there's been temptation that's been real in my world and I rolled over like a dead cat. I didn't even put up a resistance at all. You didn't have to take me in the wilderness for 40 days and starve me to death. You leave me in the comfort of my own home with everything in the world I could ever want or need and whisper some little silly thing in my mind. The next thing I know, there I go, the wrong way. No resistance whatsoever. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Are you resisting right now, or are you just giving in? Have you just sort of surrendered the battle? Have you just sort of resolved your fact, yourself to the fact, well, you know what, I just, I just, I'm a victim of this stuff. I can't do anything about it. I can't resist these things. They've now become habits in my life, and I just, I just, I've, I've, I've given in so long, I don't have the ability anymore. Oh, you do. You have the ability. You have the Spirit of God living within you. You have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who died to cover your sin and died to free you from the enslaving power of that sin, who understands exactly what it's like to be tempted to the very thing to which you're tempted. You can look to Him. You can run to Him. And not only find forgiveness for your failure, but find strength for the battle. Find a, a, an ability to withstand and to resist and to fight the temptation that's in your life. So maybe I can just call you this morning to this. If you've been resisting and just, if you've not been resisting, if you've just been letting this stuff play out in your life, then maybe right now it's the time to, to take up arms and start to fight. Maybe it's time to say, you know what, Satan, no more. No more do you have free reign in my life in this area. No more am I just going to roll over and let you do your thing with me. I might not win it every day, but I'm going to put up a fight. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray. I'm going to open up the word of God and I'm going to begin to, to wield the sword of the spirit. And I'm coming after you, man. I'm coming after you. I'm not rolling over anymore. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning some area of your life. I don't know. But God knows and you know. Let's pray together as we think about how God would want to apply this to us individually. Holy Spirit, you know our hearts as you indwell us. You know the temptations faced by every man and every woman in this room. You know specifically ways in which we're tempted to dissatisfaction with the Father's provision how quick we are to grumble and complain and whine about our lot as though somehow we've been ripped off to demand something better. You know how impatient we are waiting for the Father's timing. You know the many ways that we just take matters into our own hands and do our own things even though we know it's wrong. Thinking that somehow we're a better captain of the ship than our Heavenly Father would be. And Holy Spirit, you know our hearts. You know the million ways that we're tempted individually, privately, and personally. And so I pray 
that in these quiet moments as we just sort of dip our feet into this text that you would bring to our minds the real temptations that we are rolling over to right now and that you would birth within all of our hearts a desire to fight don't let us fall into a victim mentality where we just think that we don't have any power don't let us just keep giving in but birth within us a fire to obey the word of God to do what's right to wait on God's timing, to be content with whatever our lot is right now. And whatever's going on, whatever we think needs to happen in our life, that we would be absolutely content to wait on God to work it out. Help us right now, Holy Spirit, I pray, to take up the sword of the Spirit, to begin to hide it in our hearts that we might fight the good fight that we might resist the devil, even this week, even this afternoon, and that he might flee. We pray for these things, knowing that they're only by your work in us that it can happen. And so we pray for it earnestly now, for Christ's sake. Amen.